Please open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read 2 Peter chapter 3. And before I read that, uh, just a few words of introduction. We have a guest speaker this morning. I think the correct title is Dr. John Yates. Would that be, that would be right? My grandson James was telling me that we had a special speaker this morning that taught mummy and daddy in Bible college. And uh, John was at Tabor Bible College for many years, and he also taught some not-so-young ones. Young, young Adrian Elliott was one of his students as well. John's been before to speak to us, but it was a long time ago, and most of you were not, were not around. Each Thursday morning, I think all of you know that I pray together with other pastors uh, from the Fremantle churches, uh, different people, and it was a couple of months ago that, that one of the one of the leaders that comes and prays with us was saying, telling me about this great video that he'd watched, uh, YouTube teaching by John Yates. And um, he said, I'll send it to you. And he sent it to me and I watched it. And I was like, ah, John is right there. And uh, all those years of experience and teaching Bible. And I, would, I, would call, I do call John a prophetic Bible teacher in in the fashion of what true biblical prophecy ought to be. Bringing the scriptures to bear in individuals' and congregations' lives. It's, he's always incisive, which means you may not get out of here without some scalpel work, which will be a good thing for all of us. And hence I invited him to come and share with us this morning. And the text I've asked him to speak from, he was doing a series in his church in Bassendine, the Anglican church where he currently is, um, in Second Peter. And it was his message on the day of the Lord that I thought would be particularly pertinent to bring that to us today as we are entering into our sacred assembly. So Second Peter chapter 3. This is my second letter to you, dear friends, and in both of them I've tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the Holy Prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Saviour commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood and by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They have been kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. 
He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all of his letters some of his comments are hard to understand and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different just as they do with other parts of scripture. And this will result in their destruction. I'm warning you ahead of time, dear friends. Be on guard so that you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. Thank you, John. We welcome you and look forward to the word of the Lord through you to us. And I would like to pray for you before you begin. Join me in praying for John. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that your word and spirit together have formed John and that you will bring forth a living word through him to us today to accomplish your purposes, that we will live holy and godly lives, hastening the day of the Lord's return. Amen. Welcome, John. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you. Uh, well, it's good to be here. And uh, Wayne omitted to mention something which he only found out later, fair enough, that um, I had been speaking this series on 2 Peter, which I felt the Lord asked me to do, and afterwards I realised what it was all about. Because in February uh, this year, the Anglican Archbishop ordained several people who, in my opinion, because they had not denounced their past behaviours, their testimony of living holy lives could not be believed. Anyway, so I was preaching on this sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> my wife, who's down there, said, you know, it only needs one person to complain and you're in big trouble. I said, oh, well, darling, I suppose that's true. But that won't be the first time, will it? And anyway, um, I preached these sermons and um, in a mild way, as I always preach, you know. <laughs> and anyway, um, I got this email uh, from the bishop. That's different from the archbishop. The bishop's secretary, and in capitals, was all priority. Can you see the bishop? So I saw the bishop the next day, and he was very serious. 
And he said, there's been a complaint. I said, who is it? I, well, I can't tell you. Um, That's very unbiblical, of course. And he said, well, look, um, you've said this, you've said this. And basically said, if it was up to me, your license to preach would be taken away. And I said, okay. Um, and he said, I urge you, he said multiple times, I urge you to see the Archbishop as soon as possible. So I said, good. So I, I, anyway, I went to see the Archbishop, had a lot of people praying, and despite the threats of the regional bishop, because I've had contact with her before, she was converted through Teen Challenge many years ago. I talked to her like a sister in Christ, prayed with her and for her, and it was okay. So what is going on? Well, Jesus, who is the last one, the coming of Jesus means we are in the last days and we should expect trouble, tribulation and disturbance. We, will, we never have to be in the company of those whom John says will shrink from him in shame at his coming. So what can we learn from 2 Peter. You might like to have that in front of you, 2 Peter 3. Peter's recipients are called, in my translation, I think you have friends, which is a rather weak translation, never mind, beloved. That's what the word is. He calls them beloved because he's a real pastor and he writes to them out of deep heartfelt affection. Now look, it's not easy to correct people, but you have to do it. If you want to see them grow in Christ, you need to correct people no matter how you feel about it. So here we have Peter. He's a spiritual father. He loves the people and he longs for them to possess what he calls a sincere mind, which is a pure and undefiled way of thinking. Well, I guess some of you know that you don't think that way. Now, what's the bigger context here? Paul says uh, that God is preparing, or Christ is preparing a bride through the washing of water with the word. And Peter reminds his readers of the pr predictive words of the prophets of old and the new covenant apostles. There are quite a number of texts in the Old Testament uh, pronouncing judgment on those who would mock the idea of a long-suffering, merciful God. As the author of Ecclesiastes reminds us in Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Because God delays his judgment. One mark of the last days is the presence amongst God's own people of those who scoff at the teaching of a coming climactic judgment, which will involve all people. Now, one advantage of belonging to a church which uses the ancient creeds is that whether you like it or not, you hear again and again this message. Christ will come again in glory to judge the kingdom, it judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. That's the Nicene Creed. Scoffing the, scoffing the warnings of the scripture is always a sign of arrogance. 
and of spiritual blindness. Yet I can recall, rather embarrassingly, being in various meetings, usually about something political, where Christians speak up the superiority of their own personal worldview over these other views, and they use a mocking tone. A mocking tone is not a Christ-like tone. So, you know, if you've got a political hobby horse, make sure you don't carry it that way. Carry it in a spirit of humility. It's not about truth or error. It's about being like Jesus. Peter's scoffers are what I'd say are common sense folk. If Jesus is coming back, why has he taken so long? <laughs> Look around. There's no evidence that anything's changing. These people, according to Peter, deliberately overlooked that God, having once inundated the wicked world with water in judgment because of his constancy of character, will indeed judge once again in the future, this time by fire. Now, this is a quite detailed thing, actually. As the Lord first spoke the world into existence by creating it out of water through his word, that's Genesis 1, and spoke to Noah, that's the word, of a coming judgment before sending the flood, so likewise, to quote, by the same word, he sustains the present heavens and the earth until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And I, look, unfortunately, I, um, God keeps sending me people, sending me people, sending me people. I can tell you, uh, present company probably not excluded, by their manner of life, many Christians clearly find the end more difficult to recognise than the present. Right, The things of each day seem more real to people than the coming climax of the universe for which Christ died and rose again. Something wrong there. Christ's loving discipline in cleansing our consciences by the washing with water and the word is essentially one. One in power, one in character and one in substance with the water and the word first in creation, then in the flood and finally in the coming final judgment. The water and the word by which you are being sanctified, that is made holy, is one with the water and the word by which God created all things, which he sent in the time of the flood, which came in Christ and which will come to bring the end of everything. True believers simply know. They simply know the last judgment is ultimately real and unavoidable. But those without the spirit or devoid of the spirit, who have the mind of the flesh rather than the mind of the spirit, these things are only empty fantasies because they're spiritually known. Peter knows that the return of Jesus is essentially near and intrinsically soon because he's been baptised by the Spirit into the realm of these realities. Well, he calls this a fact. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So he goes on to expound Psalm 90, verse 4. A thousand years in your sight 
are but as yesterday passing or as a watch in the night. What is he saying? He's saying that God's experience of time is not like yours. The Lord patiently delays his return so that as many people as possible should reach repentance. God's patience is an act of mercy. And later, uh, Peter says, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Because our Father is slow to anger. This is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Of course, you understand if you're a child of God, God cannot get angry with you because of the blood of the cross. It's impossible that your Father could ever be angry with you. I'll come back to that maybe a bit later. Our Father is slow to anger. Something tragically misunderstood by the hard-hearted. So Paul gets excited and he warns the Romans in Romans chapter 2, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The day of the Lord will be sudden and catastrophic for the mass of humanity and everything standing between the judging eyes of God and the heart of humanity will be peeled away because no dark thing will remain hidden. This prospect, I said I'd come back to something, this prospect of the last judgment is utterly unbearable with, for anyone who has any sense of guilt within. So, sort of somewhat understanding this, I used to ask a question when I was teaching what they call eschatology um, and things. I used to ask this question, because Jesus said something about this. At the final judgment, will all your sins be publicly exposed to the whole universe? The room used to go very quiet. The answer is, yes, they'll be exposed as forgiven sins. Isn't that what you want? Because it'll bring greater glory of God when people see what a sinner you are forgiven. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? Actually, I was praying with a couple of guys earlier this morning and I was praying about something and they all got excited and they're praising the Lord just happened. Because these things are not small things, they're great things. Because the measure of their greatness is the blood of the cross. Anyway, so such things, such truths should move us to pray for lost people. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness. The abysmal, do you know that word abysmal? Bad state. The abysmal moral life of God's people today, of many of God's people today, testifies that our hearts do not trust the Lord we say we confess to believe in with our lips. No, we do not believe in our hearts that the Lord we confess with our lips is returning soon. The Bible professes 
since we have the mind of Christ, if we really believed that what the word who is Jesus says he means, we would believe fully, completely, comprehensively that he is coming back soon. Now, this is not a bit of theology. I love theology. Right, it's not a bit of theology. You need it by revelation. Our Saviour said, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Could that happen to you? If you think it could never happen to you, well, it will. Our problem is we are not prophetically discerning the essential nearness of the second coming because our idolatrous materialism has dulled our sensitivity to the voice of the Spirit. Now, I hope you understand anything can be an idol. Your children can be an idol. Church can be an idol. Your Bible knowledge can be an idol. Anything which becomes more important to you at any point in your life is already an idol. And you can ask the Lord to show you what that might be. Our problem isn't a deficient theology, though in many places it is a problem, but that we are grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit who always has a word to speak to the churches. That's what the seven churches in Revelation is all about. Our response in holiness, godliness to Peter's vision of the coming end of the world. These responses of godliness and holiness are sure signs to the lost that the end will come. It will come. How are people going to... They don't read the Bible, but they read your life. They read the holiness and godliness of your life and will ask, even if not outwardly, internally, what moves this person to live like this? Anyway, one of our greatest contemporary spiritual problems is that it's hard to distinguish between the lifestyle of authentic believers and that of the scoffers, Peter's scoffers. And he said three, three times in this passage, we're intensely waiting for the coming of the Lord. And he expects this authentic Christian anticipation of the coming of Christ to hasten or accelerate the coming day of judgment. I've prayed about this, of course, during the week. And the Lord directed my attention, because I never read it, you know. That's what I find interesting. When you get something you've never read, but you know it's right. Anyway, he directed my attention to the startling difference between the first creation and the new creation. The first creation was good. And it was by the sovereign power, unaided power of the spirit and the word. But we all know what happened to the goodness of the, of, the, of the first creation. It fell by judgment into corruption. That's the fall. But what about the second creation, the new creation? It's birthed imperishable and eternal because the regeneration of the universe, which is really how Matthew 19, Matthew 19, 28 should be translated, 
the regeneration of the universe, that is the new cosmos, comes because the word and the spirit are united with the bride who together cry out in perfect unity, come, Jesus, come. You never knew, did you, that the authority of your word has such cosmic influence. The role of the holy people of God in accelerating the return of Christ is incalculable. You can't understand it by reason, because it's more than reason. However, do we really want to hasten the final purification of the creation? Do we? Well, don't speak out too clearly one way or other. Make sure your word is true. Are our hearts in what the Lord himself taught us to pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we are not united in praying such things, we cannot expect masses of lost people to turn to Christ. We are, in fact, by our slowness of heart, slowing down the end and its coming. That's a bit much to take, isn't it? Do you believe it's true? It's biblical. I, um, I was part of something a few years ago, a no, summer conference thing, and a um, guy that was preaching talked about a book. The book, is called, book was called Your Best Life Now. Now, the guy that wrote that, Your Best Life Now, maximising your enjoyment of life now, in a very material way, had no prophetic vision of the end. Because what Proverbs 29, 18 says is not where there's no vision, the people perish. It actually says where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off the restraint of the law. The lawlessness that is present today in the people of God is the consequence of a failure of a prophetic vision of the end. Now, it's wonderful to... Um, refer to Isaiah 6, which John 12, 41 will tell you Isaiah saw Jesus. That's what that text actually says. Isaiah saw Jesus. So when Jesus first appeared to the prophet Isaiah, the, tr the train of his robe filled the temple. When Jesus comes again, the train of his robe will fill what? Everything. The whole universe, because he's purchased it by his own blood. The whole Bible is written with a vision of the end in mind, which is why I've always tried to teach people to read the Bible backwards, because um, what's first in intention is last in execution. So what is first in intention is the, is the end, but it's last to come. So read the Bible backwards. So Adam and Eve, for example, they had no reason to believe that God's command not to eat of the tree of knowledge and evil was permanent. If they had refused to listen to the devil, if they had persevered with faith in the character of their father as an all-benevolent father, they would have eaten of the tree of knowledge free of guilt and of shame and lived forever. 
It's in the Bible. Genesis 3.22 and Revelation 2.7. And all the Old Testament heroes of faith live godly lives in the light of the future perfection coming through Christ. What's in Hebrews 11.39 and 40? They persevered with patience for the final inheritance. Now, since Jesus told us he's coming back soon, his unconditional commitment to return should provoke our unconditional discipleship. If the Lord of heaven and earth has promised to come back soon, your discipleship should be as unconditional as his promise. Do you understand that? Well, you're all sitting there quietly. I don't know what you understand. That's not my problem. It's their problem. <laughs> but it's real. <laughs> yeah. well, Peter says, according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I, uh, I like to get in prayer meetings. I somehow multiply them. Anyway, I was, I was with some friends praying um, early um, on Tuesday morning. And there's a brother there, he's about my age, but he's very godly. And he's, he's, he's praying about the flood victims in Pakistan and the earthquake victims in China and the consequences of the massacre in Canada. And he keeps speaking about the unbearable pain, the unbearable pain which he's having and which he senses is in the heart of Christ. The new heavens and earth promised by our Heavenly Father is not a place filled with pain. It's a place from which all mourning, crying and pain have been taken away. The core of the new paradise promised is being with Jesus. Remember what he said to the penitent thief on the cross. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me, with me in paradise. Every other vision of heaven is rubbish. With Jesus. That's the only bearable state of eternity. So be diligent to be found by him without spot, blemish and at peace. Because those who long for the return of Christ possess keen insight into eternity and will be brought blameless before the presence of his glory. That's the end of Jude. With exceeding joy. Such sincere desires are opposed by ignorant people who pervert the biblical testimony of the grace of God in Christ by denying a decisive final judgment. We must resist such people understanding the real problem is not their flesh and blood but the power of the evil one who, to quote Paul, has captured them to do his will. So, you know, you see some problems around, pray. Pray for the repentance of those who are misled. But we must be careful because we don't want to be deceived into thinking that the strength of our resisting evil 
anchors and grows us in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's Christ himself, not our effort. So we must always, in every way, point people to Jesus. Well, this raises an interesting question. And it gets a bit more detailed and difficult at this point. How is it possible to sustain a vision of the impending end when everything seems to just go around and around and around? Now, I became a Christian 50 years ago. And since that time, I've heard people year after year, decade after decade, they always say things are getting worse. Well, I guess they forget the cross because the, the drama of the cross is the index by which everything must be measured. So 50 years ago, a lot of people were thinking and reading on the end times. It was all the rage. There was a book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and it was a rubbish book anyway. But, but, but <laughs> then there was, what was that other series they had, the Left Behind series, which was just as much rubbish anyway. But I don't want to offend anyone here, but, you know. Um, <laughs> I, can send, I can send you some notes on the end times. They're all centred on Jesus. But today, many, many Pentecostals and Evangelicals because of their lack of a consistent Christ-centred approach, have left all the end times really functionally behind. So what has the Lord been saying, or to me anyway, about the foundational problem in the contemporary church that has robbed it of the holiness which is in Christ? We have forgotten how to bring Christ to remembrance. We have forgotten how to bring Christ to remembrance. The antidote to all our miscalculations of God's timing as to the return of Jesus is divinely inspired remembrance of all of the words of Jesus. Divinely inspired remembrance of all of the words of Jesus. Now, maybe it's a generational thing. But I like to hang around with people who have got the Bible inside of them. I know a few of them who are like that. And they just keep coming up with scripture after scripture after scripture. We actually do need a book to help you remember. And you need to underline that book, colour it in, write notes in it. It's just a book. You know, it's the message. You will never master or have the scripture master you without such an approach. Inspired remembrance of all of Jesus' words. Now, we're not talking about memory here. I don't think this is about memory. A God-breathed remembrance shares in the reality of the exalted life of Christ in heaven, which is where you live, isn't it? It's where you're seated, isn't it? In the heavenly places with Christ. So you can have access in the spirit to Jesus' own thinking. Normally called prophecy, but anyway. A God-breathed, a God-breathed remembrance actualizes, reactualizes, makes real again the death and resurrection of Christ and communicates the coming 
soon of his second coming. And this is what the Lord meant by saying, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he... The same vitality in which he first commanded this remembrance is the vitality to which he speaks to his church today. I am coming soon. Because Christ commanded remembrance, promises and so delivers fresh communion with the Lord by communicating not only his past, but his present and his future. For this Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. The Jesus who says to the church in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, also says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. How could this Jesus be far off in space or in time? Well, he can't be. Because this Jesus is the centre and circumference of all created reality. Because all things were made through him and for him. He's the centre and circumference of all created reality. His life vastly exceeds the dimensions of physical and common sense. This Jesus speaks with the authority of the eternal God. And he breaks through the veil of physicality, making his presence more real than anything. He is the one who said at the end of the Great Commission, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. For in the spirit of Christ, we can see through all the worldly tasks which are temporary to the end of all things, lit up in the light of the all-consuming love of God. See through things to their eternal destiny in him. The promises from Jesus to his bride that we are near the end make the crucified, resurrected and ascended Lord, people tend to forget about the ascension, the ascended Lord, real to us in the power of his word, do this in remembrance of me. Because the remembrance makes real again, reactualizes whatever has happened. This word of the cross makes us to be priests and kings to God. And we stand now before the heavenly lamb, fully forgiven. Fully forgiven. Fully forgiven. Remember, as I said, I used to ask that question, will all the sins be on? Yes, as they are forgiven sins. The room went quiet because not all my students, despite such great teaching, not all my students <laughs> knew they were fully forgiven. I wonder how many people here know they're fully forgiven. You know, what goes deepest to the conscience? I'm quoting P.T. Forsyth. Right, it was a great theology. What goes deepest to the conscience goes widest to the world. What, what prof most profoundly impacts the moral centre of your life, your conscience, most, is most widely radiated to the world. 
So if you don't have a passion for the lost, if you don't have a passion for mission, if you don't have a passion for the Bible, if you don't have a passion for prayer, if you don't have a passion for Christian community, your conscience needs to be set free. So I'm trying to end here, right? In, in sharing the mind of Christ, which 1 Corinthians 2.16 says we have, we reach back, so to speak, in the spirit into the reality of the eternity of Jesus as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Is that real to you? I tell you, it is very real to me. I love my wife, but... but <laughs> Jesus as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world is more real to me than she is. And she just has to live with that. Because it's a truth that God has established in my heart. And in the spirit, we sense in the forward time his conclusive coming on the clouds with power and great glory. I'm almost finished, but I've left to the last. Well, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.10, he speaks about, I'll find out where I am in a moment. He speaks about a little time between hearing the gospel and Jesus coming back. The little while, the little while between his first hearers and the little while that we have between Jesus coming. Their little while of waiting to the end was not an empty, idle waiting nor a space of frenetic, very busy, religious striving. It was characterised by something which Jesus spoke to his disciples about again and again. The necessity of sharing in his sufferings. The Lord, being all wise and loving, has not deprived you of sharing in this holy experience, whether through persecution, the pains of discipleship, it's not easy to follow Jesus. Whether through the agonies of intercessory prayer or the deprivations of mission, our shared suffering with Christ, of which there are many, many scriptures, is the glory he's given his bride because such a shared suffering creates, I mean creates, a fellowship in destiny within the incomprehensibility or the immeasurability of grace. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've mentioned I've been through a few trials over the years. There's too many to number, actually. But the Lord has numbered them all. And I'm so thankful to the Lord for these many trials I've encountered in following Jesus. And I was, um, as I was sort of finishing the first draft of this sermon, um, I just started to cry. And, and darling, the darling, my wife, she was in the next room and she said, what's wrong, what's wrong? 
I came out and I said, The Lord has said, whilst his sufferings are complete, ours are not yet finished. Your sufferings in Christ, for Christ, are not yet completed. The question is, suffering will come, but genuine, ordained suffering with Christ, there's no glory like it. Because suffering is not the cost of glory, it's the means of glory. Suffering in Jesus, with Jesus, by Jesus, in the spirit to the glory of God the Father, is the means of glory. So I've got a question. Do you want such suffering? Do you want to see it come to fullness of expression in your life? Well, I'm going to ask you, if you do, we can pray for you today. But if you want, if you want, <laughs> if you want the sovereign Lord to have mastery in your life, in the suffering he's ordained for you, please stand and we'll pray for you. Yeah, Father, um, following you, following Jesus is not easy, but it's wonderful. So I pray for all those who you've moved today, who you've moved today, to seek you and to give their lives to you. You will answer this prayer and you will arrange the circumstances of their life in such a way they will be 100% convinced this is the hand of my heavenly father on my life because he loves me as he loves Jesus. And through this will come many wonderful victories for Jesus' sake and for his kingdom. We ask it in his name. Amen.